morning, and you're not allowed to play that song before I preach anymore. Might as well just go home now. Better sermon there than what you're going to get this morning. Sorry, nothing I can do about that. Second Corinthians chapter 3. There is an internal conflict inside of a believer, big time, when they go from a relationship with God based solely on what he's done for us, a saving grace, a forgiveness offered to us through nothing that we do except to respond to that grace and love and then put ourselves back under rules and, and regulations. It causes conflict. And you may not think that you do that, but I guarantee you at times you do. You may not think that you need to go to heaven that way, but you find yourself probably sometimes evaluating where you're at with God on the basis of how you've been doing in terms of obedience unto God. Legalism or religion is outside in. It's I'm going to work outwardly in an attempt, hopefully, to attain some kind of peace inwardly. Now, don't get me wrong. If you obey God's law, even an unbeliever obeys God's law, it's a better life. It's still a better way to live. And they may get some satisfaction from living a better life in an attempt to be good, so to speak, in adhering to God's law. But it, what it won't produce for them is a peace and a constant joy that comes only from Christ. Christianity is just the opposite. It's inside out. It's Jesus Christ living inside of us, ministering to us his grace and his mercy and his love, and that causes me to work. I don't work, so I have that peace. That causes me to want to serve him, to want to honor him, to want to obey him. And over time, as Christ lives in me, I do. I work more. I serve more. I obey more. But the whole thing is a process, not justification. When you came to Christ, when you became born again, that was instantaneous. But sanctification and transformation is not something that happens like just overnight. God is not into instant discipleship. You've seen these reality TV shows about makeovers? Like they might make over a house or a room within a house. Or even with a small budget, they'll make over an entire restaurant, change the carpet, They'll paint, put in new chairs instantly, overnight. It's different. Sometimes a bunch of friends will bring a, a woman to some daytime show because of the way she dresses or wears her makeup. And then they go backstage with some experts and she comes out an hour later and boom, it's like she's a whole new person. It's an instant makeover. Wouldn't it be nice if we could do that 
uh, as Christians. You could just walk in, a couple of the pastors take you upstairs. Everyone just waits down here for you. You come downstairs and everyone goes, whoa, it's basically like Jesus, just like that. But it doesn't work that way. God is not into instant makeovers. He's into lifetime transformations. And as we asked last time, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to cause transformation in the life of a believer? Only Christ. But the Judaizers, who now Paul is shifting his attention to here, no longer in chapter 3 so much defending his apostleship at this point. He's more defended his apostleship last time because they began to undermine his doctrine. The Judaizers are saying, no, in order for transformation to take place, you need Christ and all these other things. You need to obey the law. You need to observe the Sabbath. You need circumcision. You need the feasts, the festivals, all of those other things, putting themselves back under the yoke of the law that they had been freed from. And so as a result of that, of that teaching, it goes to underscore everything, to undermine everything the Apostle Paul had said. And they began to doubt Paul. And Paul asked the question last time, hey, do we need a letter of recommendation or something? Do you now no longer believe that the things that I taught you are true because you have to uh, adhere to the law? You are, he said, our epistle of commendation. In other words, you want to know how you know that what we taught you, that salvation by grace through faith is better than all these other things? It's the changed lives of the people there in Corinth. You are the epistle. The people's lives, their change is evidence of Paul's calling in his life, of God's hand upon his life, of his apostleship. Is he boasting? Is he bragging? No, not at all, because look where we picked up we're going to pick up where we left off last time. We read these two verses, but we're going to wait to really break them down now. Verse 4 of chapter 3, Paul says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So even though the people in Corinth were Paul's letter of commendation, they were the evidence of his calling, the evidence of his apostleship, he says, that doesn't make us anything. We're nothing here in the process. God is the only one that is sufficient to do that. Now think this through with me for a second, okay? Think this through. If the apostle Paul was not sufficient to disciple people in and of himself, if he was not sufficient to produce changed lives. If only God was and Paul wasn't, then who of us are sufficient to change lives? That would be none of us. We can't even change our own lives, let alone the lives of others. So let's take this a step further. If none of us are sufficient in and of ourselves to even change our own lives and only God is sufficient, then some of you, some of you in your heart who holds yourself back from doing the things that God has called you to do, you do so sometimes because you think you're not ready. I know this to be true. You think, I'm not ready to do this. I'm not ready to step out in faith. I'm not ready to lead this ministry. I'm not ready to serve in this capacity. Whatever it may be. 
Well, there's a sense in which we're never ready because our sufficiency is only in Christ. If our sufficiency is only in Christ, you're waiting for nothing because you will never be ready. Only Christ can make you ready. Verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers. So you want to be in the ministry and you're waiting till the day in which God says, now you're ready? The fact is, it is God who makes us sufficient as ministers. Now he continues, of the new covenant, not of the letter. And when he says the letter, it's in contrast to the new covenant, speaking of the law of Moses, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So now he's really digging in with these Judaizers who would say, oh, come on, it's not just simple faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atonement upon that cross and his resurrection that takes away your sins. You got to do all these other things too. Yeah, Jesus, that's all fine, but you need works. You need to observe the Sabbath. You need all of these other things in your life. And that's what they're uh, calling into question. And that's why Paul says, hey, the letter, that is the letter of the law, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You go back under the old covenant, and you may not go back literally under the old covenant. Because again, this is you sitting here going, well, I'm not going to actually gonna try and attain salvation by going through the sacrificial system and observing the feasts. I get that. But when you place yourself under the yoke of the bondage of a bunch of rules and regulations, the letter kills. The letter kills. Now that you're under the new covenant, it will kill you. It will kill a relationship with God. Why? Because your intimacy with God will only be as good as you are, and you're not very good. So if your intimacy with God hinges on whether or not You've been keeping the law, all 613 of them, go ahead and post them on your refrigerator at home. You will never pray, you will never read your Bible, you will never worship because you will never feel good enough according to the letter of the law. That's why the letter kills. The law of Moses interrupts my intimacy with the Lord if instead of the law of the Spirit, we talked about in the book of Romans, I'm now watching out for the letter of the law. Spiritually speaking, it interrupts. Literally speaking, it also kills because the letter of the law, the law of Moses, could only end in death. He says that. Verse 7, he calls it what? But if the ministry of death, it was a ministry of death because it could only lead to death, the law of Moses. There was no power in the law of Moses to produce life. It could only produce death. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, now this is fascinating. He says the letter kills. He says it, it's a ministry of death. Later he's going to call it a ministry of condemnation. And yet he says it began in a glorious fashion. What is he talking about? Let's take a look. He says, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance which glory was passing away, and keep that in mind, he'll use that expression passing away a couple more times, and I'll point it out then and explain it at the time. But if this glory of the old covenant is passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So let me give you some backdrop really quick. It takes us all the way back to Exodus 34. 
when Moses went atop Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, he came down with the Ten Commandments. When he came down, he didn't realize it, but the Bible says his face shone, or in other words, it was glowing because of the fellowship that he had had with God atop Mount Sinai. Last week, I had challenged you all to spend intimacy with the Lord. So hopefully you are all glowing this morning because you did just that all week last week. There's a little glow in here, some. Good job. But his face shone. And the Bible tells us in Exodus 34 that because his face shone like that, because it was glowing, Aaron, his brother, and the children of Israel well, they didn't want to go near him. They were afraid of him. I mean, think about it. They had seen the sun before. They had seen stars. They had seen, you know, the daylight. But they had never seen a light bulb before. They had never seen a flashlight. They had never seen glow sticks or fluorescent lightsabers or an iPhone. Or they'd never read the text before. That's true also. So when they see Moses' face glowing, I mean, and then, of course, there was smoke and there was thunder and there was lightning. There was a glory associated with the old covenant that was magnificent of course not to mention that his face as well just shone there even in the middle of day just bright as can be a glorious thing paul is saying look the law it was a glorious thing the giving of the law the law itself listen paul was never down on the law he was never down on the law it began with glory it was a glorious thing. It was the only nation in the world that had the ethical statutes that God had given them to live a different kind of life, a better kind of life. He was never down on the law. In fact, Romans 7, he said, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law is a mirror. It's a mirror that shows me what I'm like. It's a, it's a mirror that is revealing. It reveals the truth about me. When you look into the law, you see yourself in it. You go, yep, I've blown that, I've blown that, I've blown that. The law reveals. It doesn't fix you. You don't take the mirror and rub it up against yourself hoping it'll make you look better. The law doesn't fix you. It reveals perfectly exactly who you are. Unless you have one of those skinny mirrors you know that make you look better than you actually look that's a little different but in general most mirrors don't lie and they just reveal what is already there the bible says that the law was a taskmaster a schoolmaster to show us our need for the cross if we didn't realize we were sinners we wouldn't know that we needed a savior and so the law indeed points to our need for a savior the law and grace go together perfectly. The law says you've fallen short of God's glory. Grace says here's your only answer to that problem. That's a wonderful combination. One of our junior hires this week was in school and got into um, a discussion in front of the class with the teacher who was attempting to undermine the scriptures. And the teacher asked the student which God do you believe in, the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament? And anytime I hear someone say something like that, I know instantly that that person is totally ignorant of the scriptures. 
Because the law of God established in the Old Testament lines up perfectly with the grace of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The law says, I can't do it, no chance. Grace says, here's my answer, Jesus Christ. He paid the price for my sin. Nothing else could ever make me uh, qualified to go to heaven. Only Jesus because he was perfectly righteous. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's not inconsistent with who God is. The only problem with the law, if you want to call it a problem, is our inability to keep the law. I mean, if you could attain righteousness by works, it would be by adhering to the law. But the problem is nobody can. The law is not a doctor that can come in and set a bone for you or take out your appendix, or do some kind of surgery to save you. No, the law is more like the doctor that sits down with you and says, you have a disease that is incurable, there's nothing we can do for you. That's what the law is like. But the 613 or so some odd commands of the Pentateuch are perfect. There's nothing wrong with them at all. You just can't get into heaven on the basis of keeping them. You, it's not possible in your flesh who you are to be able to do that. And so Paul's point is, if the law is glorious, even though it's the ministry of death, even though he said the spirit kills, even though he's about to call it the ministry of condemnation, then how much more glorious is the ministry of the spirit? 4 verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation, that's an interesting phraseology, that condemnation is a ministry. You're like, I'll be that person, I'll take on the ministry of condemnation go around condemning everybody in the church and pointing out everybody's sins. Now, not that kind of ministry, but that the law actually serves us. Ministry means to serve. It serves us in that it demonstrated to us that we were all condemned without Jesus Christ. That's a great service. That's a wonderful ministry. That's why he called it that. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, and it did, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. In other words, in comparison to the old covenant, it's almost like it had no glory when you start thinking about the new covenant and how much better, how much more wonderful, how much more glorious the new covenant is. 4 verse 11, if what is, and there's those two words again, passing away was glorious, what remains is more glorious. Why is it more glorious? Because the new covenant is permanent. The old covenant was always meant to be temporary, and the new covenant was always meant to be permanent. Therefore, verse 12, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. We can speak about the gospel with incredible boldness because it's permanent, because it does solve humanity's greatest problem humanity's greatest problem is that their sin separates them from god you've been wired to be fulfilled by having a relationship with god but sin separates that and the answer isn't obey god's law although there's nothing wrong with the law but you can't obey god's law so the answer is jesus christ that's permanent that can never be taken away. And that's what gives us a boldness of speech. We can be bold because we have good news. That's an understatement. The gospel means good news. 
But we have great news to tell people of the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. What a drag it would be if every single Sunday people were coming to church and we were just talking about the law. Here's the 613 laws again. How many of you kept all of these? None of you? All right, go home next week and try it again. I would hate my job. It'd be no fun at all whatsoever because there would be nothing in it, nothing fulfilling, no hope at all whatsoever. But we have a boldness in our speech because of the grace of Christ. Unlike Moses, verse 13, who put a veil over his face. A veil doesn't speak of boldness at all. A veil speaks of hiding. And why? And here's what I wanted to get to about the passing away part of the law. Some insight that the Holy Spirit gives Paul, maybe you've never considered before. Take a look at what it says there, middle verse 13. This is why Moses really put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He did not wear a veil over his face so that they would not see the glow per se, he wore the veil over his face so that they would not be able to see the glow fading away. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, it was always intended, it was shown from the inception that the law as the basis of God's requirement for humanity was always fading away. It was always going to be replaced with something else. But the glory of the new covenant is a glory that endures forever however verse 14 but their minds were blinded whose minds mostly talking about jews who have yet to see that jesus christ was what this whole thing was pointing towards but it's true of gentiles also who just don't even want to read their bible but you take an orthodox jew and you show them you know isaiah 53 psalm 22 zechariah 12 10 they pierced They'll look upon him whom they pierced. How did they not see Jesus Christ in these things? Who did they pierce? They pierced the Lord of hosts. When did that happen? How do they not see that? They're blinded, it says, for until this day, that same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away, and it's only taken away, as it says there, in Christ only Christ can remove the blindness of the veil. Now, a spiritual veil he's talking about. Only Christ can remove that veil so that someone can look at the Word of God and they can learn about the Word of God that the law was always meant to point people to Jesus Christ. So they're blinded. They don't have to be. It's not necessary that they are. Many have come to Christ. Many, many have come to Christ. But many are blinded. Even to this day, verse 15, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, and here's the good news, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You know what I think is one of the problems with a law? And I'm certainly not questioning God. But the problem with a law is there are just enough self-righteous people in this world, some of us for a time included in that, to think that maybe somehow, some way, we could pull it off. To think maybe we might just do a little bit more good than bad 
and be qualified to get into heaven. That's part of the problem. Or we evaluate ourselves in comparison to others. A lot of people are like that. Oh, God. Some people need religion because they've really messed up, but not me. I've lived a pretty sound life so far. And that sort of self-righteousness gets in the way. Gets in the way of people seeing that when they look at the law, they fall short. Even to this day, he says. And we would say that even to this day now. Paul's writing, the temple's still in place at that time. No temple today. So if they were actually following the law, they've fallen short of following the law. Because they're not practicing the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings. None of those things are happening. Because there's no temple. Why is there no temple? Because there's no need for a temple. Why is there no need for a temple? Because Jesus Christ has already come. He's already taken the place. And now we're the temple. He lives inside of our hearts. But that veil, the spiritual veil that blinds people to their need for Christ, I think stems from the fact that we think we're pretty good people. I think people that don't know God and that are blinded to the grace of God are blinded because they think they're better than they actually are. And because of that, they remain in bondage. They're not free in Christ. He says, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the word liberty there in context does not mean because we're born again, there are no rules anymore. It doesn't mean everything goes. It doesn't mean, oh, you have liberty, so that's a license to do whatever you want. No, because there's still the law of the Spirit. Some things have been fulfilled by Christ, but some things have never changed. Some things are right and some things are wrong, and we know that there's wrong in the world. In fact, when Jesus came, he took sin and he upped sin a little bit. You know, he said, you heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He upped sin, if anything. The Bible says, he who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So there's a sin of omission as well, not just sins of commission. So it's not like all bets are off and it's all good and there's liberty. In context, that's not what liberty is talking about, as some would have you to believe in this section. He's talking about a liberty or a freedom from the bondage of the law. A bondage from having to keep rules and regulations instead of just responding to what the Holy Spirit would have us do. But we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as we're beholding and, and spending time with him, and as we're looking into the mirror, the mirror oftentimes a picture of the very word of God, as we're witnessing the glory of the Lord in our lives, what happens is we are, check it out, being transformed, middle of verse 18, and that word transformed means metamorphosis, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to the next, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what is it that we are being transformed into? This is what Romans 8 says. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his, what? Son. We're being transformed from glory to glory. There's a glory that comes from your salvation. But then we are being transformed more and more into a different degree of glory as we become more like Christ. 
as the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, you become over time more like Christ. So Moses had a kind of a glory, his face shining because he had been with the Lord. It was an outward manifestation of glory because he had seen God and it was upon him. It was a glory that was upon him, but it wasn't a glory that was inside of him. And it was a glory that would eventually fade. You and I, we have a totally different thing in the new covenant. That's why it's more glorious. It's a metamorphosis, a change that takes place from the inside out where we're not merely reflecting something outwardly, but we're more projecting something that is permanently done inwardly within our hearts and souls as the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of our lives. There isn't anybody in this room that is born again of the Spirit of God that isn't in this process, that isn't in the process of becoming more and more Christ-like. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, then you are in the process of being transformed more and more every day into Christ's likeness. That's the whole point of this. And so what that means is you cannot say this. You cannot say when you sin, you cannot say, well, that's just the way that I am. That's just my blood. That's my relatives in me. That's what we, whatever our last names are. We just are that way. You can't say that. We know how you are because we see him on the cross. So obviously how we are drove Jesus Christ to go to the cross. But he's not content to leave us in a sinful state that we're in. And no matter what you think you've done, I don't care what your struggle is, I don't care what your sin is, I don't care what you did this week, I don't care what you did yesterday or the day before, I don't care whether you were intimate one day with him this week, I'm not saying I don't care in the sense that I don't want you to be, I'm just saying whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, you can beat yourself up all you want. You can be down on yourself. You can feel like you've failed. But let me tell you what God is doing in your life because the Bible tells us that he is doing this in your life. He picked you up out of the gutter just like he did the rest of us. He washed you in the blood of his son. You're the most expensive thing in the universe because you are blood-bought. He didn't wash you and cleanse you so that you could twiddle around your thumbs until he returns someday. He's changing you more and more from glory to glory into the image of his son. And so when you do what you shouldn't do, when you blow it, when you sin, when you backslide, what happens is you sit around, and I know this from experience, and you think to yourself, man, when I used to do this kind of thing when I wasn't saved, I was fine, but now that I'm saved, it makes me miserable when I sin like this. Exactly, that's a good thing. We pray for you to be miserable along those lines because God loves you too much to let you be happy in your sin because there's something inside of you now that isn't happy with you walking that way. He wants you walking in intimacy with him because he's changing you from the inside out. That's what makes the new covenant better than the old covenant because there's something inside of you, born inside of you, that's not going to allow you to live that way any longer. All the law did was mock our ability to keep it. We never could keep the law. But God's spirit in the new covenant is working always to change you. The problem is, and here's the big thing, it doesn't always feel like it. In other words, let's say you've been walking with God five years, 10 years, 15 years. 
Some of you might say, well, I've seen a huge change in my life, and God has helped me get past this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin. Praise the Lord. But others of you would honestly come to me and say, I've been walking with God for years, and I don't feel like I've changed at all. I'm as wicked and vile as I've ever been. That's what you think. That's how you feel about you personally, because you are so familiar with your own sin. It's not true. I look out at all of you that have been here for some time, that I've known for some time, and I have seen God change every single one. You may not feel like it because you're sensitive to your sin. Some sin that you did before you were saved, like I said, you didn't even have a bad conscience about it. Now there's some things, some blemishes in your life, and you see them, they're so obvious. You look into this mirror, it's, it's like you've got a gigantic zit on your face. Well, there are more zits on your face, but there's this one blemish that's there until you get rid of it. You won't see the other ones that are there, but that doesn't mean then that you're not growing in Christ. You are growing in Christ, but here's the difference. The difference is, is that you don't recognize your own growth in Christ. We see it in you. We see you growing. We see God changing. I don't see it in me. I'm the same way. You say, well, pastor, what about you? Did you have you grown? I, I don't see it in me. Some of you might, I hope. I haven't seen it in me. I look around at me and I go, this is the same old guy. He keeps making the same old dumb mistakes. The difference is as you grow in Christ and you're closer in your walk with God, even the little things bother you that you do. Things that five years ago when you first got saved, it wouldn't have bothered you now. They totally bother you because you're, you're closer to him and he doesn't want you to live that way. And I don't know about you, but my experience with God is he's not like this. I mean, he is an encourager, but he's not like, oh, you're doing great. Good job. Way to go. You have nothing to improve on, Joe. Just keep up the good work. No, he's always kind of pushing me on to be more godly, to be more like Christ. He's never going to stop that. He's going to keep transforming me. He's going to keep making it better. Yeah, I saw you yelling at your wife the other day. Yeah, well, we used to smack each other around, so that's a big improvement. You're evaluating yourself on the basis of who you are today in Christ as opposed to who you were five, six, seven years ago. And so sometimes it doesn't feel like you're changing. I ain't what I should be, but I sure ain't what I once was or what I'm going to be. Notice there, verse 18 again, but we all, every single one of us, whether you've been a Christian for a couple weeks or 60 years, we are all in process. We're all in process. That's good news. It's good news, especially if you've allowed yourself to slip to that point where you're like, you know, I'm so down on myself. I'm, I'm so discouraged. Being transformed from the inside, but not because you're keeping rules, not because you're better. You'll never be better enough to where you'll have a peaceful life until you learn to rest in grace and settle in his love you will never feel better about your life. Because your sin, you will never conquer. You may conquer a sin, 
but you will never conquer sin. You know, when we get to heaven, I always say, and I, I know some of you say it too, I always say, I don't need any special place in heaven. I'm glad not to be Pastor Joe there or receive any kind of recognition. I'm be, you know, be in the very back corner of the throne room. It's fine with me. And uh, uh, as long as I can get in, I'm, I'm not a super Christian, uh, not a deluxe. I'm just an average everyday born-again guy, and I'm content with that. But you know what? Here's the truth. The truth is nobody is going to be especially recognized. Nobody's going to be a super Christian in heaven. Nobody's going to be bragging in heaven. No one is going to be proud. No one is going to be waving around their PhD or their doctorate in divinity. And thank God for that. That would be tough to put up with forever. <laughs> the work of regeneration is supernatural. It endures the ages and it is permanent. And get this, it contains zero human energy and accomplishment. Anyone who compares the regenerative work of Christ in you to any human accomplishment and puts it up against that human accomplishment, up against that regenerative work, is an idolater. To think that they can in any way, shape, or form do anything that would measure up. It is unimaginable. It is indescribable. We sang earlier. It's incomprehensible to take a person in a total sinful state and then insert within that person a different nature, a born-again nature, his nature, his very spirit. It's miraculous. And nobody could do it but him. And so over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul reminds the church, he reminds us in these passages, don't let anyone foist legalism on you. Don't let anyone put a trip on you that makes you think that you've got to clean yourself up in order to have a relationship with God, in order to pray, because all of the glory is always going to belong to Christ. He's the one who did it. He's the one that is all sufficient to bring about that fresh relationship. If today, you go home today and you say, you know what, I've been in sin. I've blown it. I have a broken heart about this. I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to change. I don't even know how to stop it. Go home and pray. Go home and have faith and trust that he's your sufficiency. You're not. You don't lay low for three weeks and try to be good and then go to God. Go home today. Spend time with him today. He is your sufficiency. Demonstrate to him that you trust and believe that he is all-sufficient God and that it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. You have access to the throne room today. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that nobody's good enough, not even close. We thank you, God, that our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ, and that he is all-sufficient. Even to pay for the worst kinds of things. Lord, even some people here this morning 
no doubt, haunted, not just from sins of their past, but deep, dark sins of the present too. And sometimes they wonder, how can they do it? How can they, how can they stop? And they can't. And Lord, we thank you that you, you are our sufficiency, Lord. You are grace unhindered. Just pray, God, that we leave here today and what we forgot to talk about last week as we encouraged intimacy. We forgot that our intimacy with you is enabled by you and not by us. And that door is open all the time. That's how powerful that sacrifice was. Lord, pray that you would help us to do just that today, to trust in you. I thank you for that grace. We could sing about your grace all day. It is amazing grace. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.